Hello, and welcome again to the Radio Gaga podcast. I'm your host, Justine Pajowski, and today I'm excited to cover one of Rock's most famous concept albums, The Kinks Are the Village Green Preservation Society by English band The Kinks. My main source for this two-part episode was the 33 and 3rd book on this album, written by Andy Miller. I also watched Life on the Road, a short documentary directed by Bob Carruthers, and consulted Ultimate Classic Rock, Rolling Stone, and other publications I'll cite throughout the episode. I also listened to a podcast interview with Dave Davies on Classic Album Sundays, as well as the Village Green episode of the podcast, That Album Got Me High. While I'd say I'm fairly familiar with the Kinks' major hits, I wasn't that familiar with today's album before researching this episode. And I wasn't at all familiar with the members of the Kinks or what their story was. And I think that's in part because they came a lot later in my musical exploration. Any English music I was listening to growing up was likely in the progressive rock realm. Really, it wasn't until college when I started exploring more British invasion bands like the Beatles and the Zombies. I'd also venture a guess that my kinks blind spot was partially decided for me decades ago in the mid-1960s, when the group got themselves banned from playing in the United States at the height of the British invasion. The kinks' failure to capitalize on these crucial years definitely had a ripple effect on someone like me, who enjoys Britpop, all right, but very much peripherally. So why did I choose Village Green, an album I wasn't that familiar with by a band I never listened to? I think those are two reasons right there. While the vast majority of my podcast will cover bands I'm super invested in and albums I'm knowledgeable about, the original goal I had when starting this whole thing was to learn new things about music. And I'm excited to share this album with you. The Kinks are a huge part of rock history, and I'm really glad I gave Village Green the time it deserves. I try to keep each episode of the podcast at a pretty reasonable length, and I had planned for Village Green to be just one episode. But as I was writing it, I just kept writing and writing and writing. It has an easy, childlike storybook quality to it, at the same time that it's extremely emotionally and lyrically dense. There's so much goodness to unpack with this album, so much drama to talk about within the Kinks as a band and with some members as a family. I just felt really inspired writing these episodes, so I had to make it a two-parter. Plus, you know I love a concept album, and I've always seen Village Green at the top of the best concept albums lists, but had never really given it a shot. And while this album is widely understood to be the high point of Sir Ray Davies' career, I find it interesting that he himself has mixed feelings about it. He loves the album, don't get me wrong, but he says now that he shouldn't have been allowed to make music during the time this album came out because what ended up coming out of him felt much too personal. I'll get into that a little bit over the next few episodes. Also, I think it's interesting that Davies is skeptical about how quickly everyone changed their tune about Village Green. When this album first came out in 1968, it absolutely flopped. But since then, it's become this highly acclaimed cult classic. So we'll talk about that too, how and why general sentiment about the album changed so drastically. First, let's talk about the members of the Kinks and how they got together. The lineup of the Kinks has changed a little bit over time, and The Kinks Are the Village Green Preservation Society is the last album that featured the original lineup. That lineup included rhythm guitarist, singer, and primary Kinks songwriter Ray Davies, his brother Dave Davies on lead guitar, Mick Avery on the drums, and Pete Quaife on bass. Ray and Dave Davies would be the only two permanent members of the Kinks throughout the band's long history. The two of them are both still living, but honestly, by the skin of their teeth. Before we get into the Kinks as a band, it's important to understand this extremely volatile, yet brotherly relationship between Ray and Dave. Ray and Dave Davies grew up in a northern suburb of London called Muswell Hill. 
Born just a couple years apart, Ray and Dave were the youngest two of eight children, the older six of which were all girls. The boys spent their days seeking out attention wherever they could find it, which was difficult in a crowded three-bedroom house full of people. So there was a lot of healthy competition between the two boys. But healthy competition as children would eventually morph into an explosive relationship as adults. Dave Davies tells the Daily Mail that there was one moment in their childhood that was very foretelling of the dysfunctional relationship that he and his brother would have later in life. As kids, the brothers were having a mock boxing match at their home when Dave hit Ray, knocking him off balance. On the way down, Ray banged his head on the family piano and laid there seemingly unconscious. Dave, worried he had really hurt his brother, leaned down to see if he was okay, and Ray bolted up and punched his brother square in the face. Dave tells the Daily Mail, quote, It's symbolic of our whole relationship. I felt the pleasure that I'd knocked him over, then concerned that I'd hurt him. But all he really wanted was to get back at me, end quote. The boys grew up in a very musical household, lots of family sing-alongs and dance hall music playing constantly in their home. While Dave continued to thrive under these conditions, Ray did for a while, and then became a lot more introverted and fragile as he entered his teen years. They both also endured tragedy at a young age. The day before Ray's 13th birthday, his older sister Renee gifted him his first guitar. The two of them played some songs together before she headed out to the dance hall that night with friends. Renee had a serious heart condition, and Ray learned the next morning that his sister had suffered heart failure and died when she was on the dance floor that night. Ray was heartbroken and went silent for what he has said in different interviews was months or even up to a year. Dave, on the other hand, when he was 15, he got his girlfriend pregnant. The two were immediately separated by their parents, and Dave was forbidden to see his girlfriend or their child. Dave didn't meet his daughter until more than 30 years later. Despite these huge life events and constantly fighting with each other, the brothers did find comfort in playing music together. It helped Ray come out of his shell in his high school years. Years later, the two of them decided to start playing as a duo, which evolved into the Ray Davies Quartet as they added bassist Pete Quaif and Pete's friend John Start. P.S. If Pete was the one who had landed a gig for them, they'd be called the Pete Quaif Quartet for that show. It's a band full of egos, I'm telling you. As Ray hadn't really been singing, just playing rhythm guitar, the quartet went through a series of lead vocalists, including a schoolmate of theirs whose voice you might recognize. As you might imagine, Rod Stewart did not last long in the Ray Davies Quartet. Ray, likely feeling threatened by Rod's talent, didn't like him, and he especially didn't like the idea of him being the center of attention. So Rod started his own band, Rod Stewart and the Moonrakers, later a local rival of the Ray Davies Quartet. In 1962, Ray went to college in London to study art and music while still keeping the quartet together and playing gigs around the city. While at school, Ray made connections in the industry, joined a few other local bands while staying in his own quartet, and just generally kept really busy and active in the London music scene. He knew by now that he wanted his quartet to get big and famous, and he'd do whatever he needed to make that happen. After a few name changes from the Ray Davies Quartet to the Ramrods and the Bow Weevils, the band finally decided on the Ravens. The Ravens hired a management team, record producer Shel Talmy, and Beatles promoter Arthur Howes to help book live shows. For about a year, the band was unsuccessful in securing any kind of record deal, but finally, by 1963, the Ravens were signed to Pi Records. They replaced their drummer with Mick Avery after seeing his ad in Melody Maker, and the lineup was complete. Once signed to their new label, and with their new drummer in tow, the Ravens decided they needed one more new permanent name. They had lots of suggestions from their manager and others involved in their music, and there are many conflicting accounts of how they came up with the name The Kinks. But basically, they needed something punchy, maybe a little edgy and even borderline inappropriate to be attention-grabbing. Ray says now he never really liked the name, 
Of course he didn't. At the end of 1964, the band had recorded an LP and released a number of instantaneously successful hits, including All Day and All of the Night and You Really Got Me. Let's stop here for a moment and talk about the Kinks' musical style. Ray Davies' approach was to always look at what other bands were doing and make it his business to go in the opposite direction. Except for one band that was especially influential to the Kinks, the Kingsmen from Portland, Oregon. While the Kinks began their career more influenced by rhythm and blues, Ray heard this song by the Kingsmen in the early 60s and he knew exactly the direction the Kinks needed to go. Just more amplified. And more creative. He wanted to create guitar sounds that no one else had and no one else had heard before. Once, he bought a used amp and tried everything from messing with the wires inside to plugging it into his larger amp just to get something different to come out of it. When he wasn't successful, he took a razor blade and shredded up the cone of the amp. And he absolutely loved the sound that came out. They were able to use this in the studio too, which is what you hear on songs like You Really Got Me and All Day and All of the Night. I'm not content to be with you in the daytime. Side note, the Kinks should get a lot more credit than I think they do, at least in my house, for the clear influence they had on a million different genres. It wasn't obvious to me before, but after listening to a lot of the Kinks over the past month or so, it's so clear to me. The writing, the experimentation, and the stage presence the Kinks brought to the table, it all ripples through every decade since the 60s. You can clearly hear their influence on punk rock via bands like The Clash and The Ramones. Pete Townsend of The Who credits Ray Davies as a major influence on his writing, so you've got that whole Brit rock faction. You can hear the Kinks' obvious influence on 60s psychedelic rock, like Jefferson Airplane and The Doors, all the way through 90s Britpop, like Blur and Oasis. And not to mention all these modern bands like Arctic Monkeys and Yola Tango, where I feel like the influence is more apparent than ever. Anyway, it's always cool to see the breadcrumbs once you really dive into the origins of it all. Let's go back to 1965. By this time, the Kinks had released a few albums, and they were touring extensively in support of bands including the Yardbirds, Manfred Mann, and the Honeycombs. They found themselves touring around Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. 
but tensions were already high within the band and travel made it worse. The Davies brothers' childhood habits carried over pretty smoothly into adulthood. It wasn't like, oh, we're a professional, successful band now, let's get our wits about us. No, the kinks were known for being volatile with each other on stage and off. The way these guys just beat each other to hell blows my mind. And I mean, both mentally and physically, they beat the piss out of each other. All of them. In 1965, before one of their first headlining concerts in Wales, Dave threw a suitcase at Mick Avery, and Avery returned with a few swift punches to Dave's face. The next night on stage, Dave, wearing sunglasses to cover up his black eyes from the night before, went over to Avery's drum kit, spit on him, and kicked a hole in the head of his bass drum. Avery then picked up his hi-hat cymbal, stand and all, and whacked Dave over the head with it, knocking him out and causing him to get multiple stitches in his head. The year before that, at Ray Davies' wedding to his wife, Rasa, his brother Dave got so drunk he couldn't perform his best man duties, and later he was found in bed with the maid of honor. And they weren't just shitty to each other. Ray never had a history of abuse toward his wife, but after a few years of marriage, he had become so worn down from recording, touring, and the pressure to create that he snapped and hit her with a telephone. After she got medical help and the family staged an intervention, Ray gave up and laid in bed, only to get up one night as a Kinks performance was airing on TV, and he tried to take the TV and destroy it in the oven. Shortly thereafter, Ray lashed out in other ways, including sprinting six miles across central London with the sole motive of punching his publicist in the face. All this to say, this is a band, when things were good and they could all work together, the end product was fantastic. But when things were bad, it got physical really fast. Blow-ups would happen daily in the recording studio, at which point their crew would literally just roll their eyes and go take a smoke break to weather the storm. The Kinks were a successful band known around the globe, but in real life, they were boys who had a lot to work through. As I mentioned, Village Green is the last time this lineup would be in the recording studio together. Also, as we'll learn, it will take decades for the Davies brothers to even want to be in the same room as each other for more than an hour. The Kinks' violent actions on stage and murky reputation offstage were what got them banned from performing in the United States for a number of years beginning in 1965. Their ticket sales were struggling, so in retaliation, the Kinks would skip shows completely, shorten some of them, or even like they did in Sacramento one night, where they gleefully played You Really Got Me for 45 minutes straight to punish the very crowd who actually did buy tickets. The band was also making TV appearances while skipping out on paying American Union dues, which is not allowed, and there was an incident where Ray Davies punched a guy on the set of Dick Clark's TV show. One night, after the Kinks had backed out of yet another show, the concert promoter filed a formal complaint with the American Federation of Musicians. With the Kinks' onstage reputation already pretty poor across the country, and the fact that their business dealings offstage weren't any better, the union decided to withhold American work permits for the Kinks effective immediately. They wouldn't be back for another four years. And he comes back home at 5.30 Gets the same train every time Cause his world is built on punctuality It never fails And he's all so good And he's all so fine And he's all so healthy In his body and his mind He's a well-respected man about town Doing the best things so Regardless of their American ban, the Kinks still stayed busy in the recording studio and released Face to Face, their fourth studio album. Though fans had gotten a little taste of the new Kinks sound before this, Face to Face was the Kinks' first full departure from the beat-driven music that had made them famous. The tax man's taken all my dough and left me in my stately home, blazing on a sunny afternoon. And I can't sail my yacht He's taken everything I got All I've got this sunny afternoon save me, save me. 
Ray Davies knew he was meant to create more sophisticated work, so on this album, he tried to incorporate some elements and songwriting that would elevate it. For instance, linking every track with a different sound effect like ocean waves or someone answering a phone. He was itching to create a super conceptualized album, but Pie Records just saw it as self-indulgent BS that they wouldn't be able to sell, and they made him take a lot of it out. As Andy Miller points out in his book, this sets a bad precedent for the review process of Village Green. The album that comes before Village Green, called Something Else by the Kinks, released in 1967 and was the last time the Kinks would work with producer Shel Talmy, who had been with the band since the beginning. Instead, Ray Davies took over producing. Sunset, off of Something Else by the Kinks, became a hit, but as a whole, they were being compared more and more to the Beatles, and by 1967, I think you know who was winning that battle. Ray Davies was losing his mind. He had become so worn down by the machine of the music industry, exhausted from touring, and his songwriting funds were being held in escrow as part of an ongoing legal battle with the Kinks' former management team. Also, not everyone was on board with Ray's desire to evolve from the Kinks' original sound. If you can imagine, the band members became even more divided, with Ray and Mick on board with the new sound, and Dave and Pete wanting to stay more on the side of rock and roll. At this point, Ray was fried. He tried to pull a Brian Wilson, announcing that he would no longer be touring with the Kinks and that he would instead stay home and write songs. This sort of worked. The Kinks management team scrambled to repair the damage he had just caused by literally announcing this a week after Waterloo Sunset hit the charts. Eventually, Ray was coerced into staying, and he called up NME to tell them, quote, It is difficult to find a substitute for a lead singer, so I will appear on all Kink shows, end quote. compromise, Dave started taking up some of the lead vocal duties so that A, he could shine for a little bit and prep for his solo career, and B, so that his brother could work on his next project, a piece based on a homey, comfortable village green. Ray didn't know much about what this album would look like. He assumed it would be a solo album given how divided everyone in the band had become and how insufferable he knew he had become. He was emotionally drained, tired, and irritable. His band had been kicked out of the U.S. He was basically strong-armed into touring when he didn't want to. Their record label was breathing down his neck for the next big hit to try and compete with the bands who could actually play in the United States. He had had enough. It was just time to say goodbye to the kinks and go solo. And the Village Green, this place in Ray's mind, would be a place of protection and retreat. Out in the country Far from all the subtle noise of the city 
years for Ray to put together the music for this next album. And he took a long time figuring out what shape it would take. At one point, it almost became a musical or stage presentation. But though he imagined this as a solo work, something told him it should be a Kinks album instead. Nowadays, Ray makes it very clear he thinks this is the point where the Kinks should have broken up. I understand he's a really pessimistic guy, but there's still a lot of good music to come even after Village Green. In the time it took for the Kinks to finish The Kinks Are the Village Green Preservation Society, the band would fall off the pop radar almost completely. But even as they saw their numbers falling in the eyes of the public, the band really enjoyed making this album come to life with Ray. The band members have all said this was a really special album to make, and even though all the songs were written by Ray, it felt like a true team effort. Unlike an album like Pet Sounds, which Brian Wilson wrote and then basically either told the Beach Boys exactly what to do or told them to leave, Village Green felt a lot more collaborative through and through. This new album began with 12 tracks, and at one point was 20 and a double album. Then finally, the record label made him cut it to 15. A lot of what was left on the cutting room floor would never be heard. But regardless of this frustration, Ray and the Kinks persevered and created some of the absolute best work of their career. This new album gleefully disregarded the trends of British rock at the time. They dropped the long jams and the drawn-out guitar solos, replacing them with an exploration of traditional British music, something all the British invasion bands in America had kind of pushed aside. Honestly, I think at the time, it was probably so frustrating that the Kinks couldn't promote their music in the U.S., and I know it had a major effect on their career as a whole. And now we look back and we're like, well, Ray Davies was creating these masterpieces. He's so amazing. Why would no one pick up on this? But the only reason we have this music in the first place is that Davies kept his head down and swam in the other direction from what was going on with British bands in the States. And because he didn't let himself be influenced by that, albums like Village Green and its incredible follow-up, Arthur, were able to live decades beyond the trends of the time. They also had a disadvantage when it came to the actual recording studio. Not all recording studios are these bright, shiny, maintained buildings. And as they were still second banana to the Beatles, the Kinks only had access to Pi's studio rather than the nice EMI studios the Beatles got to use. And the Beatles had a stronghold on EMI too. They were allowed to live and sleep there, whereas the Kinks had to wrestle for any studio time, most of the time late at night. And it was gross inside. Pete Quaif says, quote, that's why we all look so sleepy in photographs with tobacco tans, end quote. The plot of the Kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society concerns itself with the characters in a village. But metaphorically, the album goes deep into rare territory for the music of its time. Village Green talks of growing old, memory, regret, and failure. As Davies was suffering from mental exhaustion at the time, you'll hear a little bit about leaving the Village Green and returning back when he realizes the lights are too bright. You'll meet different people, you'll find your own Village Green, you'll be comforted and ripped out of your comfort zone all at the same time. This is a really, really special album. So with that, let's go through the songs on this album, beginning with the first track, The Village Green Preservation Society. We are the Village Green Preservation Society. God save the old duck for the bill and variety. We are the desperate man. Ray says the idea for the album's quote, national anthem, came from someone saying to him that the Kinks had always done a good job of preserving things, looking back at their heritage and basically keeping a spirit alive that might have died otherwise. The result in this song feels so pure, just a bunch of things this society wants to keep alive. Donald Duck, British comic book character Desperate Dan, Little Shops, China Cups, and Music Hall Act Old Mother Riley. It feels like those conversations you have with friends now where you're like, dude, remember Dunkaroos? Remember Tamagotchi? Pogs? Hey Arnold? One underlying theme of this album is nostalgia and our hazy fascination of the past, and that comes through loud and clear on this one. But 
but there are a couple historical things to note that create even deeper meaning to this song. There was a lot of civil unrest in 1968 Britain. As Andy Miller writes, the anti-Vietnam protests outside the American Embassy in Britain were a physical manifestation of the deterioration of Britain's economic climate. The value of the pound was decreasing, and Britain's role in the world seemed to be diminishing. So there was this whole push by Britain's Labor Department to get consumers to buy British-made goods and services, a campaign they called I'm Backing Britain. At the same time, Conservative Minister of Health Enoch Powell made his now-famous Rivers of Blood speech against mass immigration to the United Kingdom, and there were more demonstrations. Everyone in Britain was on a side, had an affiliation, joined a society that would preserve their interests. The song goes deeper than just nostalgia. On either side of the table, it represents a fear for the future and protection of what makes Britain Britain. God save the village green. to my episode about Arcade Fire's The Suburbs, Do You Remember Walter is basically the 1968 version of Arcade Fire's song Suburban War, where you meet up with an old friend years later and it just isn't the same as it used to be when you were driving around and goofing off together. The friendship just isn't what you remember and you know in your heart that it can never be again. For Ray Davies, this friend is Walter. He's based on a real friend of Davies from before he was in the Kinks. Ray and Walter would play football together every Saturday and would talk about being friends forever and sailing away in a boat and being free. But Davies says he met up with Walter again about five years later, after the kinks had formed, and figured out they had nothing to talk about anymore. And he finds himself surprised by the fact that neither man really cares to have the other's life. Walter thinks Ray is stuck in the past, while Ray thinks Walter has changed too much and now he's boring. But even though things change for everyone, still do your best to preserve the memories you had together regardless. It's worth it. I like how he emphasizes this in the song by slowing down the final line. Yes, people often change, but memories of people can remain. Also at the end, listen for the Mellotron line that echoes closely behind the melody on piano. Just like Walter is an echo of a world Ray knew long ago. about the next track, Picture Book. Family is another major theme on Village Green. I should note early that everyone we'll meet in the story is more like siblings rather than any kind of romantic involvement happening. I actually don't think there's a love song on this album at all. Ray Davies acknowledges the influence his family had on him, especially in writing this song. And the little sing-along moments mirror the kind that he, Dave, their sisters, and their parents had around the family piano as a kid. They 
the na-na-nas and yeah-yeah-yeahs and the ironic Scooby-Dooby-Doo that Ray included to mock Sinatra's Strangers in the Night, this sounds like a boppy little jam. But in the cracks of the jollity, there's an underlying sadness about this song. And I think Ray wrote it to himself, but that's just my assumption and I think he could be singing it to anyone. These pictures were taken a long time ago, those days when you were happy. Those days are immortalized in photography, but since then, we've lost a lot of what's happening in these pictures. Dave Davies' autobiography shows a couple family photos, one of them a photo of two of their sisters, Gwen and Renee, when they went on family holiday in 1957. But as you know, they later lost Renee when she died at the dance hall, and Ray never really healed from that. But there she is in this photo, sunny and happy and alive. Looking back at old pictures is happy and sad all at the same time. And sometimes you look back at photos of yourself as a kid and you're just like, when's the last time I smiled that wide? When's the last time I took enough of a chance on something that I ended up with a cast on my arm? We look back and feel like we've lost ourselves a little bit too. It's a song about very personal loss and how ordinary people feel this way every day. These first three songs in Village Green are a great example of how Ray Davies very intentionally swam against the current of popular music. This album is just about ordinary people with simple values doing ordinary things. No one on the pop scene was making music like this in 1968, which is why this album was immediately cast to the side as obscure. In 1968, people were buying Electric Ladyland. They were buying The White Album and Beggar's Banquet. Though music media had recognized Village Green as a great release, the public had forgotten completely about it. I love this part of Andy Miller's book where he writes, quote, In an age of street-fighting men and revolution, the hit faces of 1966 singing songs about Village Greens, cricket, and trips to the seaside sounded middle-aged, reactionary, and suicidally unhip, end quote. But I think the crux of this album lies in something Ray Davies said in an interview with Record Mirror, where he says, quote, I think ordinary people are quite complex enough without looking for greater sophistication, end quote. The timing might not have been right at its release, but that is what turned it into a classic and is the key to understanding this brilliant work. All right, let's meet our next character on the Village Green, Johnny Thunder. Writing Village Green, Ray Davies was mourning a loss of innocence. He felt trapped by the kinks, by the music industry, by his very young marriage. He wanted to be somewhere else. I think he sees a lot of himself in Johnny Thunder, a badass motorcycle rider who feeds off the elements and doesn't need anyone's help. He's a loner Dottie, a rebel. Ray was inspired to write the character of Johnny Thunder after seeing the Marlon Brando and Lee Marvin movie, The Wild One. Brando's character in the movie's name is Johnny, and there are clear similarities to the character in this song. Regardless of Johnny Thunder's resistance, he's still part of the Village Green, and he's still loved by them. They try to get to know him, they try to give him money and help him out, and Helena prays for him at night. Because in this quiet little town full of ordinary people, Johnny Thunder is their one taste of rebellion. seems that not only was The Who's Pete Townsend indirectly inspired by the Kinks, he literally created music that very obviously took from the main riff of Johnny Thunder. The Who rock opera, Tommy, released six months after Village Green, 
and let's just say you can hear some similarities. the next song, Last of the Steam-Powered Trains. This is the only song on the album that clocks in over three minutes. Actually, it clocks in way high, over four minutes, and it's kind of a wackadoo addition to Village Green that feels a little out of place. But there's a reason why. come out of Britain, the Kinks had emerged from the R&B boom of the early 1960s. By the time they arrived at Village Green, they had abandoned a lot of that inspiration, but it comes back to a great degree in Last of the Steam-Powered Trains. By late 1963, there was a song that was blowing up the British pop charts called Smokestack Lightning. It was by a Pie Records label mate of the Kinks named Howlin' Wolf. The song is freaking cool, and everyone has covered it. Manfred Mann, Leonard Skinner, Grateful Dead, Dead & Company, The Yardbirds, Etta James, the list goes on, including the Kinks. They used to play Smokestack Lightning as part of their live show for a while, until all of British music decided one day that R&B was dead. Pop was proliferating thanks to the Beatles. And also thanks to the Beatles, many bands who thrived on an R&B sound were being pressured by fans and required by their labels to go pop to try to compete. The Kinks were advised by management that they weren't doing themselves any favors by covering Smokestack Lightning on stage anymore. Which is why it's so funny that they wrote Last of the Steam-Powered Trains five years later. Let's listen to that and listen to Smokestack Lightning and see if you hear any similarities. Identical. I love all these little details and Easter eggs from Ray Davies. He's comparing British R&B to an old steam locomotive, something people used to care about and don't anymore. The Kinks go out of their way to create a song that somehow both spoofs and honors Smokestack Lightning, one of the biggest R&B hits in the country just a few years prior. Of course, we know now that R&B doesn't die, and that down the road a little bit, the Yardbirds were breaking up, and guitarist Jimmy Page would form a new band that would bring back R&B in the biggest way. But that's for another episode. Let's talk about the most magical, and probably my favorite song on Village Green, Big Sky. Sky looked down on all the people looking up at the big sky. Everybody's pushing one another around. The big sky feels sad when you see the children scream and cry. But the big sky too big to let it get him down. The big sky too big to cry. The big sky too high to see. 
one almost didn't make it onto Village Green. There were a couple songs on this album that felt so personal that Ray Davies had basically kept them to himself, earmarking them for his eventual solo album. Picture Book is another one. But with the solo project going out the door and rejection from Pi Records to create that double album, leaving a bunch of songs on the cutting room floor, he knew if people were going to hear this song at all, they'd need to hear it on Village Green. The Kinks recorded Big Sky at the very last minute, just a few weeks before the final record was pressed. Like Johnny Thunder, like the steam-powered train, like every other character in and around the Village Green, it's written as though the sky has a personality. People lift up their hands and they look up to the big sky, but the big sky is too big to sympathize. You could argue that this is a song concerning the idea of God, but as Andy Miller writes, quote, Big Sky is not a song about God, but about human beings cope in a world where God is seemingly unconcerned at their plight, end quote. Listen to the balance Ray has achieved here in the production of this song. This is what blows me away so much about it. The spoken word is perfectly executed, the harmonies are sweet, and on the instrumental side, everything builds together and there's never anything overpowering the vocals. Yet, so much personality comes from every member of the band. I wish it was longer than 2 minutes and 50 seconds, but I also wouldn't change a thing. Big Sky looks down on all the people who think they got problems. They get depressed and they hold their heads in their hands and they cry. People lift up their hands and they look up to the Big Sky. But the Big Sky is too big to sympathize. Big Sky is too As you can hear throughout Village Green, listen for vocals from Ray Davies' wife, Rasa. Quick side note, Rasa Davies sang on a ton of Kinks albums without any credit. And though Kinks fans now know it was her, it's a shame her own husband chose not to give her credit on his music. Roz's voice contributes to some of the Kinks' prettiest harmonies, and she was frequently the only calming, stable presence in a very unstable studio environment. On to the last song on side A, Sitting by the Riverside. Listen for a mix of the piano and mellotron, which is the instrument creating that accordion sound, and a steady rim click from Mick Avery moving the song right along. hunky-dory at first. Looking out on the water on a nice day, just one of those feelings you get when everything feels like it's right. The whole first verse is super positive. I can spread out and relax and the world is at my feet. Then by the second verse, his tune is changing a little. We learn he doesn't just need to be loved, he needs his companion to calm him down, to pacify him. He says out loud that he's content and his life is complete, but what's going on in his head is a lot different than that. And that's illustrated by the frenetic, all kinks on deck, anxiety-ridden noise session that comes when our narrator closes his eyes. fog clears, we're back to the bliss of sitting by the riverside again. But this anxiety attack happens again for the narrator after the next verse, and he snaps out of it with a bottle of wine in his hands just looking at the view. I think it's an anxiety attack. It might also be bad memories rushing in. Those and anxiety attacks can come at a moment's notice, even if you're sitting in the prettiest, calmest place on earth. The structure of the song, and the way Ray sings it, makes me wonder if there's actually anyone else sitting there with him by the water, or if he's alone, talking to himself. Sitting by the 
sitting by the riverside is a really interesting transition into side B, where we'll learn more about what's become of the village green and meet more characters that help tell its story. Let's stop there for now because there's a lot more ground to cover next week. Part two of The Kinks Are the Village Green Preservation Society will be out next Tuesday. And there, we'll discuss the tracks on side two of Village Green, how the album went from no one caring about it to the top of everyone's list, and The Kinks returned to the United States. We'll also cover what came after that for The Kinks and a possible reunion in store for fans. Until next week, give Village Green another listen and I'll see you back here next Tuesday.